Hi, Andrew. My name is Jordan. Good morning. I'm calling to tell you of one of my early memories of the Arts Club. Hi, Andrew and the Arts Club team. This is Hila speaking. So my name is Christine Nguyen. And I'm Stephanie Hahn. I want to say back in 2008, uh, we went to see Beauty and the Beast at the Stanley. I remember when you were on the back street in that small theater, and I was sitting in the balcony and Anne Mordefee was singing on stage. The memory I have of that night is uh, sitting up in the balcony and when Belle comes down the staircase for the first time in her yellow dress, a little girl a few seats over just screamed, She's so pretty! Just amazed at her ability to project her voice. She seemed to be able to project it for miles and miles. To leave a song that gets stuck in my head, and there's definitely a time and a place for that. Um, but I find like those uncomfortable experiences are the ones that stay with me the most. Really focusing on the fact that this is going to be a shared experience, um, whether it's a serious play or just a lighthearted musical or whatnot. You're experiencing this uh, performance with a room full of strangers, but you're all in it it's together. It's really the process of being in a room and getting into this experience. I mean, sometimes when I watch a show that moves me so, so, so much, it follows me. It follows me days and weeks and months. And that whole night, that whole event of watching that show becomes a very powerful memory, almost a myth. Stephanie, Christine, Jordan, Peg, and Gila. Hila, who's gone from being an arts club patron to now working in the theater's education department. Thank you all for keeping the faith. A little over one year ago, I wrote an op-ed piece that ended up in the Globe and Mail. I was just on the cusp of opening a show in Edmonton at the Citadel Theatre as an actor, when the global pandemic, in an instant really, shuttered all of our theatres and an entire cultural sector entered what I've often referred to as the long intermission. Playwright John Morrell, rest in power, John, has a key image that he draws on as a writer. I heard him talk about it when I was 19 years old and just starting out. He said, the writer is a horny toad. Now, I know that sounds dirty, and I'll ask you to bear with me. Horny toads are protected by an armored back when they're on their feet. But when turned over, they're totally soft-bellied and vulnerable. I always took that to mean creativity requires the artist to get on their backs, to expose their softness. And then you gotta get on your feet in time to handle people's response to what you've made. In this article in the Globe and Mail, I was belly out, I was soft. In it, I wrote, Theater artists are never really interrupted. We are community-inclined and prone to staying in motion. Like water, we'll work our way through the cracks until we emerge from this very cracked time. What I wrote there, I wanted it to be hope-inducing. And I hadn't quite gotten my hard-armored back up before the first comment appeared online just below the article. It came from someone called Ron7071, and he wrote, Are these people somehow more special, besides being overly dramatic? Get a grip, people. Ouch, Ron7071. Ouch. 
I don't know how much Ron 7071 at the time or even now represents the Canadian public, but there have been many instances over this past year where I've felt just how marginal theatre is as an art form. Director Robert McQueen, who appeared in episode 3, reminds me that theatre is a bit of an underdog. We're a tiny community. In the, in the scope of this country, we're a special interest group. You know, coast to coast to coast to border, there are 6,000 Canadian Actors' Equity members. That's actors, directors, choreographers, and stage managers. That's not a large group. At the time of this recording, April 2021, I'm directing a show with the graduating class at the National Theatre School in Montreal. I count myself as very, very lucky. It's one of the few instances of live and in-person theatre on the continent. I check in with two of my students, playwright Jenna McLean and BC-based actor Hilary Wheeler. This past like, year has been just like whack in terms of figuring out how to actually do it, yeah. you know, like because everything has changed every step of the way. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> everything, everything's changed. What does it feel like today, moving into an industry that is in many ways on pause? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, <laughs> um, I think it feels like a moment for change. I just get this image of like a little unborn fetus right now, even though it's not that. But like, like that little fetus curled up in like a little bubble because it's just like in its own little isolation right now. Um, there's going to be a lot to deal with. And we're not going to know how to deal with some things until we actually get to confronting them. But like, that's a part of it, I guess. I think right now it feels like everything is really zoomed in and kind of messy. And I think as we move forward, I want to see the lens like get wider and wider to include more and involve more. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where I see it going. And do you worry about theater? Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. This episode, the last of this series, is about the future. Maybe a strange thing given that my brief was about looking at the past. But I hope it has become appreciable in this work. The way that history lives in the now, through us, if we tune in. I mean, why wouldn't history have some bearing on where we're headed? or where we could go. There are definitely moments of doubt and like we're going to be stuck like this forever and the industry is broken and all of that. Like I think it's still very, I feel it sometimes. There are definitely moments where it's scary, but I think those moments are just like, this is what we have to fight to fix. And I'm willing to fight for this. I'm Andrew Kushner and this is something else. One last time. Let's play the theme song. Act 1. The Handoff.
I am not impartial. I'm calling that out. I've known Ashley Corcoran for over 10 years. I mentioned it in the first episode. She is a dear friend of mine, along with being the current artistic director of the Arts Club Theatre. And I also hold true to my premise, my original premise. This series is not a legacy project or promotional piece for the Arts Club. When we were discussing this commission, I said to Ashley, I want to be free to tell the truth as I come across it. I promise to be compassionate, but I do want to do justice to what I'm receiving and who I'm speaking with. And for me, justice has a lot to do with accountability, holding myself accountable, above all, as a storyteller. I think it says something about her that she said to me, do that, warts and all. Yeah, I think, of course, there's always concern about warts and all. I would say, like, to, to, to add to everything I just said, we all love the Arts Club. And so we, we want to share, like, you know, like any human wants to share the best version of themselves. But we're also, like, we know part of being the best version of yourself is showing your complexity. Over the past decade, I have seen Ashley grow from a resident emerging artist at the Tarragon Theatre in Toronto, the artistic director of the Toronto indie theatre company Theatre Smash, the artistic director of the Thousand Islands Playhouse in Gananoque, just outside of Kingston, and now she's the AD of Canada's largest urban theatre, a gig she started in her late 30s. For all that they owe to visionary women for their beginnings, Big regional theatres have been led by men far more often than not. Rina Fraticelli's landmark study in 1982 titled The Status of Women in Canadian Theatre had calculated that only 11% of artistic directors across the country were female. This in an art form where 49% of women report being more likely to attend theatre as compared to 40% of men. This gets flagged in the Equity in Theatre report, released not that many years ago in 2015. That more recent report also flags that across the country, 28% of artistic directors were now female. So that may feel like a slight move in the right direction, except when you look at the big regional theatres. The number was still paltry. Only 14% of these large companies had female leadership. 14%. Ashley embodies a number of changes. She is part of a movement, a difficult one, towards a better, more equitable cultural landscape in this country. She doesn't speak publicly about this, but I've asked her if I can mention the following, and she said, okay, if I thought it was important. And I do. Artistic directors of large companies are used to getting a bit of hate mail now and then. It comes with a gig. Some people don't love the shows. Some people don't love the programming. But so often what Ashley receives, often from anonymous sources, is deeply misogynist in nature. She's told me about these emails. They're astonishing. The world is still really struggling with women in leadership roles. Still. For all of their differences, there is a strange parallel I've observed between Ashley Corcoran and Bill Millard, the only two artistic directors after Yvonne Firkins passed away in 1966. Now, to share my theory, I thought I'd evoke Yvonne's 21 Steps to Make a Play. In this case, 
I offer the six steps to make an artistic director of the Arts Club. Bill and Ashley, either by accident or by fate, took such comparable paths to the job. Of course, I want to acknowledge there are many other ways to get this sort of leadership position, but I hope you'll indulge the pattern I've observed. Step one, born and raised in BC. I was born and raised in White Rock, British Columbia, which is about 45 minutes uh, south of Vancouver. On the waterfront. Uh, West Vancouver at that time, uh, in the late 40s, 50s. Step two, an early and deep engagement with music. Bill, hugely into music in his childhood. And a much better musician, I think, than me, also, I should say. <laughs> I usually played third or fourth trumpet, uh, and I could play those parts. I was not going to be a first or second trumpet player in the jazz band, but the third and fourth trumpet, you need to have that sound to create the fullness, to create the beauty that is a jazz band, a stage band. But Bill, musical Bill, makes it clear to me that skills in music doesn't necessarily include singing. And uh, at the end of the year, she said, um, now, Mr. Billard, uh, I had performed in the, the musical society as a, you know, a kind of chorus boy type thing and thought, well, I certainly don't want to be a chorus boy. I, I can't dance and my singing may be okay. But, but anyway, she said, um, you know, you have a very peculiar voice. Step three, the privilege of catching theatre in England. And then all of a sudden I was in England and seeing one or two plays a week, um, everything from... Complicite work to work at the National Theatre to big musicals. We saw uh, Olivier do his Othello. Ralph Richardson did a Shaw play, uh, maybe Heartbreak House. Uh, Peggy Ashcroft, can't remember what. Ingrid Burke. Musicals and the West End. Uh, it was an incredible year. Step four starting in stage management. Are you interested in the National Theatre School? And I said, well, you know, I, I, if anything, I'm interested in directing. And he said, well, we don't have a directing course, but, you know, if you take the production course, I'm sure you'll, you'll work with uh, directors that you could learn something from. Practically, if you're not an actor, it's the only way to get into a room and get paid. Step five the big move into directing. I found this email uh, about 10 years ago. I found this binder and I found this email that I had written my parents. Dear mom and dad, I'm liking stage managing, comma, but <laughs> I think that I would like some more creative control. I think I'd like to be a director, um, but I'm only 18, lots of time to figure that out. Late for dinner, love you, Ashley. <laughs> I often disagreed with the directors I was working with. I mean, it was, I was probably not exactly the most supportive stage manager in the world. I would criticize what the director was doing. And then the actors would come to me and say, you know, do you think this is right or not right? Not every show, of course. And some of the directors were appalling. You know, there was one director, I won't name him, but in tech, he got so drunk we could hear the, uh, his bottle, whatever he was drinking, rolling down the aisle. Step six. Both Bill and Ashley convey a profound desire to create a devoted family around what their theatre is doing in the world. To find people that uh, believed in what the company was doing, 
realize that you know we're an arts organization. We're not a commercial entity. I also love the 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 fact that as an artistic director, you can create opportunities for audience members. You can create opportunities for Making artists. Making sure that they were proud of the work that we're putting on our stage. Around grade twelve, when my mom was asking me, like, well, what do you want to do, like? If you, if you study drama. I don't think there was any particular magic in, in having people stick around. And I said, I think that there's something at arts organizations where you create opportunities for other artists. You know, <laughs> somebody else would have to describe my leadership style to tell you why they might have um, stayed. There are, of course, differences, too, between Bill and Ashley. Fundamental ones. Among the ones I noticed is that Bill never really worked from a manifesto of any kind, like a vision statement. My sense from those I've spoken with is that he worked in a more improvisational way, more intuitively, and perhaps in a more opaque way. Historian Malcolm Page writes this of Bill back in the 80s. Millard has always been reluctant to make policy statements about the Arts Club and his view of theatre. Malcolm Page then quotes Bill saying this, quote, I haven't tried to make a direct, this is what I think of theater statement in my direction. I maintain that theater is a live thing that should touch you. That's when it truly works. Ashley is quite different in terms of her building a vision statement. Upon securing what she calls her dream job in 2018, she created a document that outlines her artistic goals for the company. She speaks to it frequently, especially in those moments with her team where a tough decision needs to be made. Every single time we would have a staff meeting or I would announce the season, I would be like, let's go back to these seven artistic goals and how they, and let's see how these choices are being um, represented, represented in these goals. She was open to sharing them with me and for me to share them with you. I think it can be a key into understanding her hopes for the future, her actions in the present, and some way of measuring when she's succeeding and the work still left to be done. I'm only going to touch on a few of them here, and the others later in the episode. But among Ashley's goals is a commitment to advancing the creation of new work by BC artists, and focusing on the development of BC playwrights. She wants to serve local artists, be that hiring locally or creating opportunities for professional community engagement through things like grants and company residencies. She does admit to me that Bill's last season had 97% BC artists, and that her first season only had 86%. It's all in the bin in the 80s for my couple seasons. Um, And I think that that's partly because of the co-productions that we've done. Um, uh, but it's also like philosophically, I do think that there is something um, useful about bringing in other voices or perspectives and the diversity that that brings as well. Co-productions, as some of you may know, are instances where two theatre companies, usually in different cities, collaborate on one show. For instance, 2019's A Thousand Splendid Sons was a co-pro between the Arts Club and Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre. Co-pros allow the Arts Club to pool resources with other theatre organizations in the country and to share risk. They're often a way to do bigger shows and to pay artists better. 
Ashley also feels that Copros put the arts club into more of a national story, which is important to her. But these projects do have some drawbacks, meaningful ones. For instance, Copros put a lot of the building of the set, props, and costumes with one of the two companies involved, meaning less work at the other for carpenters, props builders, scenic artists, and wardrobe personnel. It's a serious issue. Under Bill, co-productions weren't common. And along with this, Ashley also inherits the Vancouver Playhouse's long legacy of bringing artists in from away and how diminished and impoverished local artists felt for years because of that. Some local Vancouver artists spoke to me off the record about this. Their concerns about fewer jobs available to them on the biggest and usually highest paying stages in the city. Others, also off the record, which is interesting, said the co-productions they've been part of amounted to nice long contracts, and that they've seen returns on getting to know artists and artistic directors in other parts of the country. So it's contentious, and something that Ashley has to navigate as a leader. One of the goals that I wrote about, you know, this is now three and a half years ago, was about um, ensuring that our stage is home to artists, stories, and creative practices that include and reflect the diversity of our community. Um, and, And I say that, you know, that this was a goal written three and a half years ago. This is another example of a, of a goal that's like, nuanced or hopefully become um, deeper in the time that I've learned more about Vancouver and learned more about representation as well. Act two. I think we're beginning to understand. Around the end of living in New York, like the sort of the late 90s, I knew that I wanted to get into theater and I knew that I wanted it to be indigenous. And I really didn't even know what that meant or what that was. And I knew that I needed to come home in order to do that. Quilamia Sparrow is a Musqueam theatre maker, teacher, and activist. She appeared briefly in episode two of this series. Quilamia has seen a lot of the world, having travelled overseas a great deal in her late teens as an international model. She grew tired of the fashion industry, but the traveling really marked her. What it really taught me was that anything is possible that time. You know, when you, when, when you leave your, everything that you know at such a very young age and you see, you see immense possibility out in the world, just in the form of other people living very differently than what you're used to. Hulemia saw herself as an indigenous theatre maker, not unlike Ano Shirani in the last episode, who, flying over the Pacific from India, was unsure of how he would become a writer, but knew in his guts that he would. Hulemia began her journey rooted in her own convictions. She enrolled into the actor training program at Studio 58. Were you the only indigenous student in your class? Yeah. <laughs> Is that a lonely place? Yeah, for sure. I was really left to my own devices to figure out a lot of stuff on myself. You know, in the school library, hunting for any inkling of any sort of indigeneity. I I believe I was resi- resistant to the whole program itself. I feel like I was um, 
kind of kicking my feet every step of the way throughout the whole program. Looking back on it, it makes absolute sense that I was in a space that wasn't where my whole being was not allowed to be, um, where I was um, processing a lot of um, intergenerational trauma. Her voice and speech teacher at the time offered her something that she's hung on to, to this very day. And he said to me one day, he said, he said, you're going to be teaching people your name for the rest of your life. And he couldn't have been more right. Like my whole career has been exactly that, introducing myself, stating my name, owning my name, teaching people how to say my name, um, and then and then sharing sharing teachings with non-Indigenous folk. I'm not sure that I say your name correctly. Um, can I try? And can you tell me if I've uh, is that how, do you like people trying and failing or would you rather just <laughs> rather just direct me? <laughs> no, 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 no. I like the trying. I like the trying. Uh, Quilemia. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. Quilemia. Quilemia. Yeah, Quilemia. Quilemia. There, that's more it. There. Yeah. Hulemia's practice as an artist is one that is richly anchored in her Musqueam heritage. When I ask her how she might define Indigenous theatre, she puts it this way, in the form of a question. She says, what does it specifically mean for me to be a Musqueam woman? She tells me her relationship to the land is primary, and that this is where her theatre pieces come from. For myself, I don't fully know it. That's how I feel about all the place names in Vancouver. I dive into those place names so that I can, can reclaim them for myself and embody them and fully know them. And then, then in the process, I end up sharing that with everyone else. Huelemia identifies this work as a form of indigenizing her theatre practice. Indigenizing being a word that she uses regularly when talking about what she does. She tells me that this walks alongside a practice of decolonizing herself and the institutions she finds herself in. This is a really big concept, decolonization, and it's one that I've been working to educate myself about, particularly in this past year. Brenda Crabtree, an accomplished basket weaver, the director of the Aboriginal Gathering Place at Emily Carr University, and recent addition to the Arts Club Theatre's Board of Directors, puts it to me this way. So for me, decolonization, it's really, um, really approaching uh, everything from, you know, certainly at the school um, uh, curriculum development in the healthcare system, it's really uh, looking at tra traditionally European or Western approaches. And really what we're asking is that, is that people open up a little bit and think about alternative ways of knowing, of thinking, how things are operating and and what are some of the alternatives? What can we do better? And I think the key to how can we do better is incorporating um, Indigenous perspectives. After reading my first draft of this episode, I write these things out before recording them, 
My podcast colleague Priti Daliwal asked if and how I had given thought to my relationship to the land when I named the traditional territories in episode one. I admittedly did do some research on how to integrate a meaningful acknowledgement into this podcast. But did I go deep enough? Did I genuinely take the time to reflect about the land and my historic relationship to it? My present-day relationship to it? And my relationship to the host nations? Like, it's certainly occurring to me now that I've had multiple family members work for CP Rail, including my grandfather and father, and how their careers with the railroad provided me a lot of stability growing up. When you type CP Rail and Coast Salish peoples into your search engine, you get this Globe and Mail headline. Railroads are a symbol of dispossession and colonial control that goes back generations. Now, that's probably worth reflecting on. Had it occurred to me, as it does in this moment, that I could have gone about the acknowledgement in a different way, one that better incorporates Indigenous perspectives, as Brenda put it. Holemia offers this. Because the land is unseated as we speak, and we are in present day, and um, um, absolutely, it is everyone's responsibility now. Like, there's no getting around it. And I think we're beginning to understand that more and more. They're like, uh, no, <laughs> because we've been hearing it both. Like, oh, it's in the past, get over it, let's just move on. And has that happened? No, it hasn't happened because it's not in the past. It's right now. It's a present day dilemma that we are all in. And it's not going to go away. That word still is, is useful. That it, these are the still unceded territories. The still unceded lands. I think you're absolutely right that people do think, to, they think of it as a past transgression. Yeah. If you actually are making connections with the Indigenous peoples from that land on which this building stands, you have so much more connectedness and grounding to the place than you could ever have out of a building or a structure. You know, if you actually have relationship, I mean, really going back to our protocol again from right from the beginning of all of this, that the conversation around protocol, that like, that is our way of being. Like, we really are beautiful hosts. That like, we love this land. And I, when I, when it's done positively, and what we say in our culture too, when we do things in a good way, it, it fills my heart with joy to, you know, share this knowledge and to be the steward or the host of this space and this land. I, one of the most important relationships that you can have is with the Indigenous people of the land that you're on. Yeah. Hulemia speaks to what she calls having true relationship, a way of being together that's founded on things like mutuality, respect, generosity, all things we know and love, but things that sometimes fall away. Having true relationship, prioritizing true relationship, she tells me, can fundamentally shift business as usual in the theatre. This 
two and a half week long process where we're rushing to the finish line and we do things in a very militant sort of way that may be efficient and productive, but have we lost our whole beings and our soul and ourselves in the process? Have we done ourselves harm in the process of trying to make something or to create a product? That's a very colonial way of doing things. That goes back to like the very seed of colonialism of I need more land in order to fill my up in order to um, make as much money as I can um, so and and I'm going to do this throughout the whole world I mean that's the same mindset that's like we must do more at all cost hmm. and like are you okay working in that system because if you're not that's a that's can be decolonizing yourself. Hearing her speak to this, I think about my own habits around theater. Go, go, go. Hustle, hustle, hustle. And make do with how little you've got. I think back to something the Arts Club's executive director, Peter Cathy White, said to me. The ethos of the Arts Club under Bill was no theater should be dark. We should always have theater on. You know, so every penny that Bill would say would be so that we can keep running theatre year round. It's a rare thing to see, the amount of, you know, production that happens. And, you know, certainly I think some people would say that corners, you know, were cut at times, you know, to be able to pull that off, you know. And some of those corners that are cut are in negotiations. It's in, you know, salaries. It's in not just artist salaries, you know. That's, you know, it's, it's never been a place where you're going to you know, get paid the most as a, 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 as a not-for-profit organisation. And the ethos behind it for me is always have something on, always be pr producing, always have theatres running, that people should walk past an arts club theatre and be able to say, oh, oh, oh something's on, I'm going to go in and see it. You know, there should always be something running. And so, you know, as a result of that, we end up, you know, with... Uh, with that, with a reputation that I think is earned of being, you know, we, we are frugal, have been frugal. Was there any kind of negotiation within the organization around, like, maybe we should reconsider the cost of always being on um, because somebody's got to pay for it? Yeah, oh, yeah, we, yes, uh, we have, yeah, I think, you know, from time eternal, probably, you know. Are we really going to do this many productions, you know? And can we do these productions? And yes, several conversations, but we never changed the model. Still, to this day, we haven't changed it. Robin Volk has worked in the props department of the Arts Club for a long time. I've always been interested in the sort of like scrounge and like fit it together nature of theatre. It's, I, I like that aspect to it. Robin has been laid off while productions are on hold through this pandemic period. She's been at the company for 20 years. And people have asked me, like, why do you stay there? Uh, you can work anywhere, but I love it there. Robin does love it there. It comes through loud and clear in my interview with her. And she's also forthcoming about what made her work as part of the production department a joy 
but also a source of heartache. When we were really working at a very high pace of production, there was zero time for invention. So you just had to do what you knew and get it out the door as fast as possible. Put it on stage. It doesn't matter. Just like put it on stage. Robin makes appreciable to me the toll that growth and drive and certain business strategies take on the greater ecology of a theatre company. What it does to morale. Sometimes that hustle, that go-go-go at all cost, just needs the gift of more time, more resources, more breathing room. It's good for the production, but it's really good for the people working on it. In 2013, when for the first time in her career at the Arts Club, she was given permission to do some overtime hours, which she desperately wanted. It changed the game on completing the massive props list for the musical Mary Poppins. Well, I just remember like being allowed to come in and like, at, like, can I work on this? And people saying yes. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so you don't feel so down when you go home. Like, ugh, like I can't finish this thing. Like, you could finish things. As Huilamia put it, not having to rush to the finish line. I mean, certainly we invested uh, a lot of money in a lot of things that, that didn't necessarily, um, as you would say, return on investment because that wasn't the point of it at all. This is Bill in the final interview I did with him. But always being in a, in a position to make sure that uh, you, had, you had the resources to be able to do what you wanted to do was important. Now, maybe I was, maybe I did get trapped into being a little too rigorous in, in some negotiating stance. But of course, the, you know, they would come back at me, agents for actors or agents for designers or whatever, you know, were equally as good in negotiating or, or in many instances better. And I guess, um, you know, unfortunately, I got into that, um, you know, into that kind of mode in a way that I probably should have um, let it go earlier. I think that might have been one of the regrets. But then I was always worried somehow it must be some something from my past in childhood or maybe my family or whatever uh, always worried about running out of money and making sure that we had enough to uh, in a sense to do the next show yeah I think back to we talked a long while about the cannery and I've, I've always kind of wondered if there's some connection to your upbringing yeah I mean certainly um my dad was, you know, well, he was a businessman, so he uh, he was conscious of of um, you know of husbanding your resources, and in the fishing business, which is up and down, and you know, always uh, facing some kind of uh, disaster around the corner. Um, you know, he he was certainly cautious, and I guess maybe I inherited some of that. Um, or, you know, of course, my parents um, went through the Depression. You know, it's the classic, your mother folding up the wax paper and reusing it over and over until it almost falls apart. You know, it's it sort of, mm -hmm. it, you know, you, you do sort of um, take some of that, I guess. 
and I, I suppose in the early days uh, when my when my dad in particular, well, maybe both my dad and my mom, were skeptical of me getting into theater um, because they just didn't see how it could possibly provide me with a living. Uh, I had to I had to make sure I proved them wrong. I ask Hualamia. How does a big cultural institution undergo a paradigm shift? Or do like or is it possible? Like in this country, is it actually possible? I don't know if it's possible and what what's what we're seeing right now, the falling away of things that aren't working any longer, but really not knowing um, how we're going to replace them or what they need to be replaced with. What's happening right now is we're having a um, the dissolving of power and power structures, right? And so we're starting to understand what real power is, what true power is. I think this is probably going to change it, what we're going through now to some degree, because we have always been in growth mode, you know? We've always been growing. Peter is referring to the impact of the pandemic, the racial reckoning, the extent to which we can no longer carry on with business as usual, and how we have an opportunity to do better. I'm really struck by Hulemia's generosity in speaking with me, the many teachings she offered, given that she has such a limited relationship with the company producing this podcast. In fact, to date, the theatre has had a very limited relationship with the host nations altogether. Both Ashley and Brenda Crabtree convey to me that the theatre is working on rectifying that in substantive ways. But in the meantime, I receive Hualemia's offering of conversation and insight as a gesture of good faith. She believes in anything being possible when we let go of the things that don't work. And you would think that artists are among the most capable people with that mission. Uh, Yeah, I believe so. I believe we are, actually. And I mean, I believe that that's where it is happening, you know? Because we make and remake. We make and remake, so we are experts at this. We're resilient folk who create things out of nothing. Like, we are experts at creating things out of nothing. (laughs) It is our moment. (laughs) I have so much hope. Act three. Will you meet me in the dark again? What have we been talking about in this series? A theater company? theater people? Are we talking about an art form? Are we talking about how this country tells its stories? The barriers to different kinds of stories being heard. Have I anchored this podcast in an internalized survivalist mindset? How do we keep stories alive? How do we keep theater alive? Ashley's goals for the Arts Club do include investing more into production values, adjusting the ethos from constant production, and focusing energies on the quality of process. It's perhaps a natural evolution for a company of this size, and by virtue of what Bill built, 
including a rainy day fund that has saved the company this past year. Ashley finds herself at the helm of a slower-moving ship, and because of that, maybe it's one that can adjust its course. One of her last goals, as she puts it to me, I want the audience's lives to be enriched through creative, impactful, and hands-on experiences. And that takes the form of various activities and points of engagement. But it highlights for me something that Ashley said at the very start of my work on this project, that she was curious about what place the audience has in this consciously eclectic histories of the Arts Club. As hardcore patron Christine Nguyen put it, When like the curtain rises or whatever the case is where you're doing that standing ovation, you know you just shared something really special with people you will probably never see in your life. Um, but then you all came together and for, you know, two hours, three hours for that one evening, you shared that experience. Um, that is just, it's different every time. Um, it's not something you can replicate. Um, that's like one of the things I just love about the theater experience, regardless of what the show happens to be. It's our job to catch them, keep them, hold them very close to our heart, but make sure they listen well and catch it all and not want for one minute to move out of their seat and hard to believe it's over when it is. That's our job on stage. That's actor and arts club darling Nicola Cavendish reflecting on that relationship between artists and audiences. When she did For the Pleasure of Seeing Her Again at the Stanley Theatre, which is playwright Michel Tremblay's homage to his deceased mother, Nicola remembers this of the audience. There would always be no less than six, eight, ten different men in different places in the big house, 575-seat house, and uh, they'd just be sitting there. Others had filed out, enjoyed the show, but they stayed. These people, individuals, stayed. And often I would stay with the curtain call which was myself and the other actor and the fellows would come down to the front of the stage it was immense because they felt they had visited their own experience with their own mother and then had cause to reflect upon themselves in their relationship with their mother growing up within their own story their own history it happens to me when I'm in an audience of an extraordinary play and caught up by it so grippingly. And you come out rearranged. You come out into the daylight and you think, okay, where am I going? Oh, right, I've got to walk. I've got to walk and get a cab. But you are the show and what you've seen and how you felt is so, so richly within you. It is, it is transforming. It really reinforces that idea. Theatre is co-created between artists and audiences. As British playwright David Hare says, a play is not actors, a play is not a text, a play is what happens between the stage and the audience. The play is in the air. And American playwright Sarah Rule says, the theatre, I have always maintained, is composed of language, ether, and actor. One commodity the theatre has that film and television do not have is air. Air is that wonderful substance that denotes presence. And Canadian playwright Yvette Nolan says, In theatre, 
you can put all the positions on stage and work things out in the air. And it's scary to think that right now, what we're precisely afraid of in this world is air and the virus that is carried upon it. If theatre is about the air, then it will be some time yet before we can get audiences back into the dark, shoulder to shoulder, strangers together, made less strange by the shared experience of seeing a play, hearing a story, having familiar and unfamiliar feelings alongside each other. Doesn't it sound like it's worth fighting for, though? Worth dreaming about? Will you come back? Will you resume your habit of coming to the theatre? I conducted 47 interviews to create this podcast. It exceeded 75 hours of recorded conversation. I could have spoken for triple that many hours and still come up shy of some comprehensive, exhaustive retrospective. I kept reminding myself of what I said in the beginning. What if history is less a noun and more a verb? Something that we can move through. Something that we can dance with. Less about nailing it. After all, nailing things makes them stuck. And usually a bit battered. I wanted to see how things floated alongside each other. Remember historian James Hoffman's floating stages? Relationships more than dates and events. The ways we share the waters. The ways we share the air. I wanted it to be more about turning things over in the now. And maybe in doing so, giving them new life. Speaking of new life, across all the conversations I did have, I asked something that I've been turning over for months. Is theater going to be okay? Morris Panitch, you took some of your pain and confusion about the early AIDS crisis, and you wrote Seven Stories, a Canadian classic. What do you think? Is theater going to be okay? Honestly, five years ago, I would have said no. Honestly, since this pandemic, I think yes. And I don't think in the short term it will be okay. I think in the short term it's really going to be hard. And we all know that. And we all know because we're all fucking unemployed right now. Yeah. And God knows when that's going to come back. And I don't think, I don't know if it's going to be any time soon. It might not even be. But I do think when they come back, people are going to feel something they've never felt before. Something about connecting. And I don't just mean theater people. I mean people in general are going to feel the need to connect. And that need to connect is going to be something that theater can give them more than any other art form. Anne Mortify, you sang with Leon Bibb, your dear friend, in Yvonne Firkin's attic and changed the course of Vancouver's theatre history. What do you think? It's, it's a dark, dark time for the arts that depend on creating community. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it, the arts are so precious because, I mean, it was like church. You, you join with your community and you sit together where your arms are touching each other in the chairs and you're allowing somebody up in front to, to give you the experience of story that, that is, is trying to have you see something you'd never see or wouldn't recognize in your personal life. I, I, my heart aches for it. We're in dark times. And they're more dark than we recognize. 
It's, you know, if we can't self-correct and can't value things that are more important, we will be corrected. That's what nature does. Nikki Lippmann, you were part of the counterculture movement, a moment where theater artists reshaped their city in a radical way. Is theater going to be okay? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think where does be, your where does your hope or your faith come from? I don't know. I'm I'm a you know a real Pollyanna optimist at you know at the worst of times, and um, like now, yeah. I, uh, I I just think that when I see and I haven't seen a lot of it, but I've you know watched some of the things that are being done to get around because the need to make theater is so fucking strong that people have taken this computer have taken digital and they've twisted it like into a pretzel and they've thrown it up in the air and they've made it into a football and they've molded it in order to make theater so that gives me hope people haven't just sat back and said oh well you know we're screwed i don't think it will go back to the way it was and I don't know what it will be like. I think it'll be different somehow, but I, I, I don't think it's going to go away. Ano Shirani, you crossed half the world just to become a writer, to rearrange people's guts with your unflinching stories. And you've been unstoppable since you started putting pen to paper. It's a good question. You know, I, I will say that when this whole lockdown happened, I was in India. I was in Bombay for nine months. And... Again, strangely enough, not being able to access the theater, I actually started, I, I wrote a new play. I longed to just go back to the stage. But in terms of what will change, for me, it continues to remain the same, that I'm resolved to tell truthful stories. And the fact that this was taken away from me. My resolve is to be even more truthful, to push even more. Omari Newton, you transformed a moment of attempted erasure and denial of your blackness into a thriving artistic career and activism. Is theater going to be okay? I mean, there's no, I don't know how to answer. I mean, I, I just hope it's more inclusive. I hope it's kinder. I hope it's more inclusive. I hope there's a, a diversity of forms of theater, of directors, of designers, of producers, you know, I, and that it's a place where we believe in each other, where we, where we believe that we're, we're all on the same team and it's not so adversarial. I, I don't know. I just, I, my hope is that we have a more empathetic community on, on all sides. Yeah. I think theater has survived a lot more than this and theater is not going anywhere. It's just, It'll have to adapt and evolve and take on new forms. But yeah, theater theater will be fine. Katrina Dunn, you have seen and have studied the sickness of our cities, how our cultural ecology is endangered. Will theater be okay? I don't have the medicine. I'm sorry that I don't. Uh, and I think my medicine is always to put culture back in the hands of the artists. You know, I don't know if we can 
I don't know if we can stop the momentum of Vancouver, but we definitely need to comment on the situation. And the artists need to have um, the tools and the um, and the resources, not just money, but I mean space and control and those kinds of things to be able to make that commentary. Because without alternate voices, um, people are going to feel even more homesick than, than they do now. Historian James Hoffman, you told me that we need a key image to anchor ourselves in our art form, its history, its future. What do you think? Let's talk about doing theatre in BC. Um, mm-hmm. What, what, what is our place? Do we have a place in all that? Um, what is our place? What, what do you think? Um, uh, where, where are we moving? Is there an, from, is there an a, to, a to B we're going from? Uh, are we just going to stand still? Are, are there things we're just going to ha- happily forget and not even talk about? Um, you know, are you happy with what we're doing or want to do or can do? You know, those kinds of big questions I th- think need to be addressed. Robert McQueen, you survived one plague already as a man and as an artist. And now, what do you think? Theatre will come back. Theatre's not going anywhere. It never has. You know, I mean, many have said it before me, but Shakespeare just hit pause <laughs> until the plague yeah. through London and rattled out the other side. And then they'd come back and pick it up in Act Two and finish the play. You know, so we're coming back. And personally, I'm thrilled that we're going to have to come back differently. At the core of it, I think there is opportunity here, but we have to be willing to let go of what we know. And we have to be brave. This is an opportunity for community to come together and tell story of community. And for all of it to be accepted and all of it to be hungered for and all of it to have a place at the table. All of it. Everyone's story deserves to be told. Everyone's story deserves to have an ear and an eye and a voice and a heart. Everyone's story. So if we come back, how can we come back where everyone has permission? Bill Henderson of the band Chilliwack and the play Grass and Wild Strawberries. What do you think? What are we fighting for? The audience means everything to me. When the people are there, you know, you've got this springboard. You can feel what they're feeling and, and you, you, you touch them and you see what it feels like, what the temperature is and what's going, what's going on, what it feels like. And you work with that and you play that back to them. You're, what your experience of them is comes out. They, they recognize themselves in it. And you know they're they're probably not going. Oh, that's me. <laughs> but you know what I mean. They they there is something that that communicates because to them because they're in that same place and they send that back to you that they recognize that and you really enjoy that and you send more back to them and it builds and it builds until you've got this thing that is so intense and so beautiful. Tough to find that. Can't get that now. That's tough. Because that's the real, that's the real deal. Bill Millard, tell me, how are the fishing business and theater similar? Well, uh, both have limited resources um, to, to begin with, and they and they're both um, have to rely on 
uh, in the fishing business, the, the fish that are out there and in the theater business, the audiences that are out there, the actors that are available. Um, they're, they're both, I would say, um, in a sense, fragile, you know, that there's no strong bedrock supporting them. So they have to make sure that they uh, are able to make sure that resource exists, that it, it is able to regenerate itself. In the arts and in theater, you're dealing with a, with a resource that has to constantly renew itself. So you have to find ways to um, take the, what, what you have and, and make the best of it. Hulamia Sparrow, you said you were hopeful. We will gather in the dark and we will share all of this together. That's the beauty of theater and it's not going anywhere. That's when we become essential workers. That's when we become essential workers, yes. Yes. Yeah, and it is essential. Donna Wong, you and your late husband, John Giuliani, wrote that free theater report. What did the dedication say? I think, look, I'm just going to pull this off the thing. I don't know what you've seen of it, of the, do- the original document. I have the original, original, because when we finished it all, we said, we're not going to give this to Canada Council. It's going to sit on some archive shelves. So we made a total photocopy of the entire thing and gave them the photocopies. I have the original. But anyway, um, yeah, so the, the dedication says, with due respect to all those who have helped to make the Canadian theatre what it is, in the fervent hope that they will now not stand in the way of what it must become. <laughs> How do you like that? This is Something Else is an Arts Club Theatre original podcast. It's been written, directed, and hosted by yours truly, Andrew Kushner. Thank you to research and podcast assistant and EDI consultant Priti Daliwal and her impeccable support. The unstoppably good original music by the Golden Age of Wrestling. Go! Download their music. So good. The magical and sensitive sound design and editing of Kevin Galt. The truly exceptional production support from Ace Martins. And a big thank you to the whole team at the Arts Club who dared to take this ride. My interviews for this podcast were all recorded using Zencaster. And for this particular episode, I want to thank Hilary Wheeler, Jenna McLean, Robert McQueen, Peter Cathy White, Brenda Crabtree, Robin Volk, Huelamia Sparrow, Bill Millard, Ashley Corcoran, Stephanie Hahn, Christine Nguyen, Morris Panich, Anne Mortify, Bill Henderson, James Hoffman, Katrina Dunn, Omari Newton, Donna Wong, Anosh Irani, Nicola Littman, and Nicola Cavendish. Hi, I'm Ashley Corcoran, Artistic Director of the Arts Club Theatre Company. And I'm Peter Cathy White, the Executive Director at the Arts Club. This is something else. Consciously Eclectic Histories of the Arts Club is generously supported by ITC Construction Group, BMO Financial Group, KPMG, BFL Canada, and longtime patron Lee Girls. 
We would also like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, the BC Arts Council and the City of Vancouver for their ongoing support. And of course, it goes without saying that not just this podcast, but every production created by the Arts Club requires collaboration and teamwork across our organisation. From our development team that connects with our amazing donors and community partners, allowing us the opportunity to fund projects such as this, to our marketing and guest services departments that ensure our audiences are able to access the work, to our admin and finance department that supports all of our activities, and to our production department who learned a whole new way of creating great art in order to record and prepare these podcasts. To our artistic department, who welcomes and hosts the incredible freelance artists with whom we are so lucky to collaborate, and to our education department that finds innovative ways to connect our audiences with the content we are creating. We are so grateful to work with the passionate, curious, and determined staff at the Arts Club. This is truly a collaborative effort that takes people and resources, and of course, the support from donors and subscribers, people like you. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in supporting more new works and local artists at the Arts Club, please visit artsclub.com and consider making a tax-deductible gift.